This is an ABC podcast. Swipe left, swipe right, swipe left, swipe right. But can you really tell who's going to be dangerous on dating apps? Yes, this week on Download This Show, the government and the likes of Hinge, Tinder, Grindr come together to find out new ways of making hooking up online, I mean romance, just that little bit safer. Plus, getting medication over the web, what are the pitfalls? And are you about to see a lot more Australian content on streaming services? Plus, as an added bonus, guess which controversial politician is coming back to at least one social media platform? I'll give you three guesses, but you will only need one. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, uh, AAP Future Transport reporter Jen Dudley-Nicholson. Firstly, welcome to the show. Secondly, congratulations on your new job. Thank you very much. I'm living in the future. Oh, that's exciting. So when you are a future transport reporter, do you exclusively take hover cars to work? Yes. Yes. If I can't hover, what's the point? That does make sense. Uh, Alongside Jen Dudley-Nicholson, we have Josh Taylor, reporter with The Guardian. Welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. I don't have a new job, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, no, no, that's no good. That's it. I'm totally fine with the current job, I'd say. Oh, it's the sound of somebody updating their LinkedIn on live. <laughs> Welcome, both of you, to the show. So, uh, first up on the show this week, um, how safe are dating apps? That has been the subject of national discussion over the last couple of weeks with the government coming together with the likes of Tinder and Grindr and Hinge and all the rest to discuss ways in which dating apps could be a fundamentally safer experience. Joshua, exactly what happened? So the government pulled together this, I guess, this roundtable of of all the different uh, apps that are out there, and then they're basically looking at what can be done to reduce the amount of abuse and, and violence that you, that people sort of experience arising out of these apps. And, and, and like I think this is it's a it's an offline problem that's transported into an online world. Like you're you're now interacting with many more people when you're looking for dates and things like that, and it means that you can be you can find yourself being abused a lot of the time. You you might be uh, I think catfishing is probably a major problem where people are pretending to be who they who they're claiming to be online. Then they you know either scamming you or just trying to get something out of you. Some of the the proposals that they put forward are essentially sort of like background checks and an ID verification system, so that you know the pe- people you're talking to are who they say they are, and if if that person has had an issue on another app or something like that, and then has op- opened up an account on on another app, there might be some information that can be shared between those things, so so they won't the person won't continue that sort of behavior on a new app. But it is interesting. It's still very early stages. We don't really know where it's going to end up. And, uh, you know, we could probably get into this in a bit, but I think that it's probably a little bit, you know, considering what we had last year with Optus and Medibank in terms of, of um, uh, all the privacy and all the information that got leaked out there, I don't know how much we want to be encouraging more companies to retain a lot of data on us, but happy to discuss. <laughs> Okay, so one of the things I thought was interesting is the the different uh, dating apps that have sort of been brought together for this roundtable. Are there issues universal, Jen, or are there slightly different issues from platform to platform? There will be different issues because there's different people involved. But ultimately, they all have the same sort of, you know, vanilla problems where, you know, potentially there, there are problematic people who will join multiple apps in, in terms of scammers. There are, you know... <laughs> potentially violent offenders who are joining um, one app and getting kicked off and then creating a new profile or going to a different app to sort of, you know, perpetrate what they're trying to do. 
And so ultimately, like one of the things they discussed was actually sharing information because there's only so much you can get from a, a criminal check, for example, if somebody hasn't actually got a criminal record yet, if they're a very good criminal, if that's a thing. Mm. Anyway, um, so potentially that's, that's information they could share. And one of the things I thought that was important that they brought up, and Michelle Rowland, the communications minister, brought up, was making sure that there's a, a good reporting function. So for when something goes wrong on one of these apps, that's reported and potentially that information could be shared across platforms. So there, there's some similarities between Bumble and Tinder, for example. And if, if one person was incredibly problematic on one app and was kicked off, then potentially they could be kicked off on another app based on that behaviour and then save a whole lot of potential dates problems. I think one of the points probably worth making when it comes to this area is that there's no sort of singular smoking gun feature that's going to obviously solve this suite of problems, right? There's going to be a sort of a range of different functionalities required to kind of navigate, I guess, the the culpability that some of these apps have in, in when terrible things happen. But out of the things that were discussed, Josh, were there things that, that you think actually, yes, that does make sense. This is something that we, sh- that we should have. I, well, I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that I think the, the apps are raising as, as general issues that they're finding is, is stuff that they're working on already. So I think it's a, it's a lot about like educating the public about respectful relationships and consent. I think that's probably the big thing. It's like these conversations that we should be having offline, we now need to sort of transport into online. And, and you know, we're, we're getting to the stage now where we've got a lot of people who are either in the dating time of their life or just coming into the dating time of life who have only ever known apps as the availability for dating. So I think that there's a lot of catch up to be done in terms of like just how I guess people should be um, interacting with them. And I think the other thing worth mentioning here is, and it's not really sort of discussed in a lot of the coverage is that I think there's a very big difference between heterosexual dating apps and and gay dating apps as well. I think that's the other thing to mention that um, I think that there are a lot more, and, and rightly so, there are a lot more um, guardrails, I think, in, in, in apps between where men and women are interacting to, to go on dates than there are between two gay men, for example. Um, mm. And I think that's just, I think, was possibly because um, <clears throat> gay men have been, that we've had apps a lot longer than I think the heterosexual world has. And um, I think the other thing is like, you can search gay Twitter very, fairly easily and see a lot of people talking about their grinder horror stories. Like they'll get a message from someone who's like mm. 10 feet away from them taking a photo of it because it's still got stuff in the app that tells you how far away in that. And you don't really have those in straight apps because it's such a, <laughs> it's such a terrifying prospect for women. So it's, it's, I think it's important to know that there's sort of different rules for different apps as well. What would you like to see come out of this, uh, Jen? Are there particular things you're like, this should have been done years ago? I, I do like the idea that they could but they could share information about particularly problematic people. Um, in the same way, like on Instagram, if you have someone who's harassing you, you can block them, but you can also choose to block other accounts that they make. And I'd, I'd like to see that sort of stuff where if someone's blacklisted, they're blacklisted from all of the different apps. Um, I think that's that's quite helpful. I think what was potentially unhelpful was this idea of of sending your ID and having ID checks to the apps. Because as Josh mentioned earlier, we've kind of got problems with sharing ID and then having that information leaked and then the repercussions of that. And anyone who's queued up outside, um, yeah, a a motor vehicle's joint because they're, you know, Optus leaked their information will know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. Um, These these apps, uh, they're, they're kind of problematic in that they're, they're typically based overseas. They're designed to sell your information to advertisers. Do you really want to trust them with your most personal identifying information? Not really. I mean, it's bad enough that they have, you know, the profile pics that they do 
which are dodgy depending on on what app you're on. So I think that that's that's potentially problematic. However, this roundtable did seem to be open to discussing a whole heap of options and then potentially setting like a, a set of rules, a set of a set of mandatory rules across all of the apps, which would be interesting to see if they get them right. And for you, Josh, are there functions that you're like, yes, this should absolutely have been a thing? I think definitely if you um, if you want to be able to block someone, then have not have their profile come up a few times before because, you know, you talk to enough people and you say it doesn't matter how many times you block or unmatch or, or something like that, you'll end, like, there will be someone who keeps coming back to you like that. So I think, like, just basic sort of stuff like that is is quite good. I, I Yeah, I'm still very, very cautious about any sort of um, ID verification because of the the problems that we've mentioned before. I think it may be looked at something that does if the, if the government is embarking down a digital ID path at some point as well, whether that can be built into it, but that brings a whole lot of other problems with it as well. But I think, yeah, just, just as sort of a basic thing, just a way that you know, if you if you're getting serially serially harassed by someone, there needs to be a way that these companies can take action. And and I guess I think one of the things that the the comments that came out of the the roundtable was that there needs to be more transparency here, and we need to make sure that the when you are lodging a complaint, so no matter how many times you report an account, you might not get a notification saying yes, we've looked into this, we've investigated. Just some some more transparency around that sort of stuff. All right, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week from AAP, Jen Dudley-Nicholson and from The Guardian, Josh Taylor. Guess who's coming back to the internet? Well, he's, well he was always on the internet, but he's coming back to Facebook. Uh, Donald Trump will have his ban on his Facebook and Instagram accounts lifted for the first time in two years. That's according to Meta. Uh, Jen, why? Why is this happening? Oh, because it's 2023 and we need a new challenge. <laughs> Why because not? the last couple of years have just been too easy. <laughs> we, we've all had a great time. No, look, he's he's been um, he's been unbanned from Twitter too. So so all of these things are reversing, and I think it's become a bit difficult to maintain, uh, I suppose, a, a lifetime ban on quite. A, a, I mean, a very public person who's potentially standing for office in an upcoming U.S. election that's only happening next year. So I think that. Facebook has has always said that you know they they're not keen on being the world's censor. I think that they were a, a bit dubious about putting this ban in place and they waited for like a, another platform Twitter to do it first. Um in the first place, they had set up an oversight board so they can kind of keep a distance from it. Even when the oversight board came back and said, you know, you can make a call on it, they went, "Ah, oh, we'll just wait a little while." It's a big call to make and to be fair to Facebook, they're going to get stick either way, um no matter what they choose. I think, though, that just the fact that he he's potentially going to be a candidate or vying to be a candidate in a US election means that they can't necessarily keep this man banned. Josh, one of the things that's happened is uh, Meta, the company that obviously runs Facebook and Instagram, have, have talked about updating their policy, but introducing sort of guardrails, particularly when it comes to rules around public figures. What have they actually changed? Yeah, so if you and I post some stuff that is against the community guidelines, we, we might get like somewhere between a one and 30 day suspension from being able to post. Um, but they're bringing in new rules that effectively mean that for someone who's a public figure, so if you have like, if you're a political candidate running for office, you have more than a million followers or something like that. Um, you can, if you breach the rules, particularly around sort of inciting violence around a, 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 a an issue like what we saw on January 6th in 2021, um, the US Capitol riots, you can get a ban of anywhere between sort of like a month and up to two years. So like basically the other ban again. Now I'm a bit 
apprehensive about whether this will actually be implemented. And I think it's worth reading the the blog post from Nick Clegg from from Meta in hand in hand with the um with the Washington Post unpublished draft of the letter that they that they put out about social media companies this week from the January sixth committee. And in that in that letter, they basically say that all social media companies, but Meta in particular, were very sensitive to criticism from conservatives that their enforcement of their policies around inciting violence and and cracking down on election misinformation was actually targeted conservatives because it was conservatives who were making all these claims at the time. So it meant that they were very, very reluctant to do anything. And they point out a few times where Meta was basically thinking about making up special rules just because of Trump. And, it, you know, we've seen today that, the, you know, with, the, with these new guardrails, they are new because of Donald Trump. So, yeah, I'm a bit uh, cynical about how this will actually work in practice. I think that he he has used Facebook massively to his advantage, just as the Republican Party has, and and there are a lot of claims about how they use that to influence people. Um, I'm I'm sure that they will do that again. His persona on Facebook did seem a little bit. Uh, <laughs> how do you? A little phrase bit it? like somebody else was writing it for well, him. Yeah, I mean, it it did seem a little bit more polished. It, it looked like somebody had maybe edited his words a few times before they actually went out. There was a, there was a tiny bit of a filter there. Um, which is is probably a healthy thing. Whereas Twitter felt like he was using his own phone potentially in the bathrooms in the morning and just like <laughs> stream of consciousness. This is what I think today. In terms of what we'll see, um, I, I think that I think that he will come back to Facebook, maybe not Instagram, but I think he will come back to these to these sites, especially if he gets candidacy in the U.S. election, simply because they've got such a wide audience. And the the audience that he's currently posting to are generally true believers and people in the media who have to report on it. Um, on Truth Social, his his own social media site, he's he's got a bit under five million followers on Truth Social, which is way way lower than what he. I think he had something like eighty eight million Twitter followers and and something like thirty five million Facebook followers or something like that. Part of the justification for Meta allowing Trump back on the platform was that they argued that. The threat had rescinded, for instance, January six, and they, you know it's a different environment than it was. And and I think that is largely because his reach is spectacularly diminished because he's on this social network that only true believers and and his and media are on, as as Jen said. And so I think that they're playing with fire a bit. That if he if he still does have the influence that he does have, and once he does come back to Facebook, we will get to see that for the first time. I think actually, you know, although it was it was very funny when. Trump didn't come back to Twitter after Elon Musk unbanned his account because it looked like a huge snub on Elon Musk. I think that it was a strategy in part because that he wanted to be let back on Facebook. And if he'd gone out and started tweeting all the stuff that he's putting on Truth Social about QAnon adjacent stuff and, and election conspiracy theories and things like that, Meta would have been under much more pressure to not lift the ban. It's only because he's basically been quiet on Twitter that Meta's seen, well, can't really be that bad, so they're going to let him back on. So I think he really does want to be on these networks and we're going to see it in, in the next couple of months. I love the cyclical argument that like he isn't doing that much damage now because he's not online. If you put him online... Can he do the same amount of damage? I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. And Netflix, Disney, Amazon Prime, all the big streaming services are, from about mid-next year will be required potentially to start putting on more Australian content. Uh, Josh, how has this come about? Yeah, so this is th- through the uh, federal government's new, uh, you know, what they call the revive policy as part of bringing back arts and culture industry in Australia after COVID and, and I guess chronic underfunding over the past few years. And, and essentially they're, they're arguing that 
these platforms that are making so much money from Australian users who are subscribed to these platforms should be putting some investment back into the Australian film and TV sector. So they're, they're looking, it's not quite clear how much will be invested, but it maybe around 20% of revenue or something like that, that they're going to put back in and, and the government will need to legislate it. So it would be in place by the middle of next year. But it seems to be, I guess it's something that the, the sector has called for a long time and something that the broadcasters who, you know, the freeware channels and things like that have been calling for for quite a while anyway, because they obviously have to abide by these sort of local content rules. That, and they think that it just levels the playing field a little bit. Jen, is 20%, and that's the number that has been floating around, it obviously remains to be seen where they actually land, but 20% of, um, of the revenue, is that enough? Too much? It depends which side of the fence you're on, whether you're paying or receiving. <laughs> um, I think that 20% is a good place to start. Um, free-to-air television currently has to produce 55% of its programming in Australia. Um, but obviously these these large streaming services, they're, they're not just servicing Australia like free-to-air networks. They're, they've got much bigger audiences overseas. And it would be interesting if, if all of the different countries had sort of a, a 20% rule in place. I think it's worthwhile mentioning too that we are actually seeing some local production from these streaming services now, whereas we didn't when they first came out. So when Netflix first came out, they were very much like, you're lucky that we're here. Like, you know, <laughs> we're shining our benevolent light upon you. Whereas now they're actually, they're making some stuff. And it might seem like it's just Chris Hemsworth and his wife, Elsa Pataki. I mean, I have no problem with are, that. Like, I'm not going to lie. If they yeah, exactly, want to keep making stuff, I'm fine with that. I just would like it for very other people attractive. to make stuff too. <laughs> Very attractive, high-quality content. But now we've also seen um, like the reboot of, of Heartbreak High, which actually scored massive ratings for them and, and did was very successful. So there's no reason that this has to be seen just as kind of like a, an onerous requirement. It can actually work out for them. Australians make decent TV shows. I hope, though, that it doesn't devolve into a place where what's happened um, previously in some free-to-air networks where they, they just kind of get an Australian you know, potentially Vince Colosimo, as they've done in the past, um, to voice over, you know, some some UK um, reality television. It would be nice to see some some actual local drama production in Australia as a result of these rules. The other thing is like, okay, I think, I think we've probably got a lot of pretty high quality Australian drama. I would like to see more sort of like short live television comedy, things like that, that, that Stan is doing a little bit of, but stuff where, you know, we don't have something like the late show that's that's for the current generation or anything like that. It's it's something that it's a gap in the market that no one's really doing. And if these international players are wanting something to fund, I reckon that's something to look at. Does it actually work in a streaming platform though? Because I know John Stewart has a, a sort of a chat show on, on Apple and there's a few others that have popped up on Netflix. Is that the stuff we've come to expect from streaming services or will that remain the domain of, of networks that still have a free-to-air component? I think that's something that you know, I, I think people are always looking for what the next thing that will take off. And I think that a lot of people maybe not would not have seen watching reality TV on, on streaming services, and things like that, but now I use like a huge business and things like that. So I think there is a market there for different things. And, and I think, you know, if you're trying to differentiate yourselves in a, in a time when we've got like a huge oversupply of streaming services, that's probably one way to do it. Can I just add too, when Josh said The Late Show, I automatically thought of like the D-Generation Late Show. No, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And I'm 100% here for about. a working dog reboot. Yes, please. No, that's, that's definitely what I'm talking about. I reckon <laughs> yeah, good, like good. an ABC comedy type show for, for like the 2020s would be great. <laughs> I feel like the, if you have to put the brand in there, it kind of answers its question where it's probably live. <laughs> but I'm just saying that because I happen to be in an ABC studio at the moment. <laughs> Download the show is a program. And finally on the show, do you have a weird bump somewhere, a boil, a strange pain? 
Are you more likely to go to a doctor's office, sit there in the waiting room, wait to see a doctor, or are you more likely to go online and use one of the many, many, many telehealth services that are available? Increasingly, we're picking the latter option. There are a whole range of services where you can talk to a doctor, perhaps uh, via video chat, but more often than not, just a chat bot and then get a bunch of pills or ointments, whatever it is you need sent to you. Is that necessarily a good or bad thing? Or are there some nuances in between? Josh? I think it's a definitely a nuanced situation. I think it's it's there's a combination. Good, because I was setting you up for that because it felt <laughs> like that was the only available answer. Yeah, so I think there, there's definitely, you know, if you have something that you need to a repeat prescription for something that where you don't want to necessarily take the time out of the day to organize a GP session, go and see them, stuff like that. If you can get this done online quickly, have the medication delivered to you very quickly, that's very good. I think where it becomes a bit more problematic is where the people are being uh, prescribed things that they shouldn't be prescribed because it, it's not suitable for them, whether, you know, uh, uh, people being sort of hocked medicine um, by these by these various companies that that they maybe shouldn't have, or if they've maybe got a medical issue that does need you to go in and see a GP for whether that's something they need to do do it for. But I think for you know a lot of the things that that people are buying them for, I think um, it, it's not too bad. I just think there's probably a bit of space for regulation there, particularly. It's quite useful now because, you know, this this goes into the, the broader discussion around GPs and, and the GP shortages that we're experiencing at the moment and the difficulty people have in actually getting bulk billing doctors as well. So when that convenience is there, I think it's, it's, it's a very lucrative thing for a lot of people. I think it's a really interesting point there, which is I think there are a number of these services that actually present themselves as like specialists on certain maladies, right? So uh, I think maybe just because of my demographic, I get sent a lot of stuff from like on, I, I get sent a lot of Instagram ads on like for pilot and mosh and those sorts of things. And they, what's interesting about those health services is, is Jen, is they really sell themselves about being, you know, hair loss, weight loss, sexual health. Like they, they're like, come to us if you have these specific problems. Are there limitations in there that, that need to be navigated, Jen? If, if it's sort of like purpose-driven as opposed to, you know, the situation I described earlier, which is like, I have a weird bump, I don't know what to do with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, I mean, massive nuance all the way through this conversation. So, I mean, there, there are times when, you know, it's great to be able to go to one of those specialist services and, and maybe you do actually have weird bumps on your face and you're looking for skincare, in which case the risk is is reasonably low that if you go to one of these services that, you know, they're going to sell you the wrong thing or they're going to sort of have bad health outcomes as a result of, of going to one of these services. If you go there for fertility, then it becomes a bit more complicated because there might be issues there that a doctor could pick up that if you're talking to a chatbot, they're not going to find. Um, so it's it's not necessarily straightforward. I mean, I think that the wonders of telehealth um, to come out of the pandemic have been, you know, for things like I need a referral to a specialist and it's super annoying to have to go and wait for an hour in a doctor's waiting room in order to get a piece of paper so you can go and see another doctor. Or, you know, maybe you're you're looking for a script that you've taken for a long period of time and you can, you can you know, see a, a doctor or talk to a doctor over a phone and, and get a, um, a result on that in a relatively short period of time for everyone. But then when it comes to, you know, I mean, maybe maybe you're losing hair, for example, but maybe there's an underlying cause behind that. Maybe it's not just that you're you're getting old and life sucks, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a thyroid issue, for example, and that's when you need to see a doctor. And that's not necessarily um, clear if you're just responding to an ad that you see on Instagram. I suppose one of the other concerns I think people might quite rightly have around these online services is that, in just in the last 12 months, we've witnessed some of the most <laughs> incredible and 
disturbing uh, hacks of people's personal data um, from Optus and, and the like. When it comes to health services, surely there's a there's a heightened level of tension and concern over these services and, and how well they're protecting our, our data, Josh. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely something that's going to come up at, at some point in the future as well. Like we're going to find out that the one of these companies has had lax uh, security policies and you can currently see, you know, everyone who's got a prescription for various drugs that, that they've ordered through this service. And, and you know, I think that's definitely going to be a, a, an ongoing concern. But I don't know. I think um, a lot of the issues that are being raised can kind of be dealt with through existing rules and things like that. I know um, the like a lot of the health regulators are taking a look at um, uh, how these, this stuff is being marketed online as well. You know, I, I know that as part of the the ACCC's inquiry into into online influencers and things like that, they've also they're also liaising with some of the health regulators to make sure that the people who are promoting healthcare products are doing it properly so i think a lot of these a lot of the concerns that we have around it are, are sort of concerns that we can apply to to different sorts of things anyway so there is a lot of personal information uh that you might be giving to these companies as well but maybe it's not as much as you were giving to medibank in the first place <laughs> so we're kind of back in the same situation we were before jen in the realm of these telehealth services which people are using more and more have you seen anything particularly innovative that you're like yes that's a really good idea oh the the thing that I, I liked most is just that for for certain conditions when you really don't want to go out in public, um, then you, it, it, like if you've got a throwing up bug, you don't necessarily want to be sitting with a bucket in public. And I think that it's it's really mm. nice to be able to have a video chat, you know, hold your spew up to the to the camera as is, or whatever whatever it is you, that you do, and you can actually get a result from that as opposed to endangering everybody else around you. I think some of the other specialist services, like I've, I've seen um, Kin, which is around female p- fertility, and it it seems like it's it's really kind of got a, a strong focus and it seems like a really interesting service. I don't necessarily endorse it. I haven't used it. But I thought it was really interesting that there was they were focusing on, on such a, um, a small part of the market, but a, a part of the market that was really important. And so I'm interested in, in seeing these sorts of startups develop and at the same time I'm wary of what they might do. For you, Josh, are they particularly innovative or I guess to to flip the nail on its head, nail on its head? Yeah, sure. Let's go with it. Uh, are there concerning things as well that you're like, that feels like it could be a problem? <laughs> well, I mean, apart from the potential for hocking stuff that you don't particularly need, I think, I, I mean, it's a, it's a balance, right? It's so I think, um, you know, if, if, I, if I have to get regular prescriptions for something that, you know, it's fairly routine, um, but I have to go to the doctor every time I need it every couple, like every three months. Then that, that's a pain in the butt, um, not not literally, but just um, uh, just having to go to the GP. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, um, you know, maybe when you're when you're having that that ten minute session with the GP, you he, they might sort of say, "What about this? What about this? You know, should we get a test for this? Just like just sort of a regular checkup type thing." So um, while I can see that like all of these online services can bring with them loads of conveniences as well. There are sort of situations where just even just going to a GP can actually be quite good for someone's health and, and pick up anything that might be of concern at the time. So I think it's a bit of a balanced situation. It's not one will replace the other. You kind of need both, I think. All right. With that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Josh Taylor from The Guardian. Thank you so much for being on Download This Show. Great to be back again. And Jen Dudley-Nicholson, glad to have you back. Happy to be here. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review or find a friend and tell them they should listen to it. You don't have to be aggressive about it. You can be chill. Like, you you, you treat it chill. Uh, And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.